0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Well, how are we doing? Yeah? Second service. The sleep-inners. Love it. Well, uh, I'm Jimmy, and uh, I'm on staff here at Stonegate, and I'll uh, be preaching, obviously. Obvi. So. Excited about this morning. We are in the Psalms, so Psalms is kind of like the go-to book. I feel like that's everybody's favorite book uh, of the Bible, and I'm preaching the first in the series of the Psalms uh, for July. And uh, I guess it's appropriate. I'm a psalmist. I write songs, right? I do this for a living. Lead worship here at Stonegate. I. I write music. I I do shows. I sing songs, and so I guess this makes a whole lot of sense. But it's funny for me to be doing this because, as as much of a songwriter as I am, and as long as I've been doing this and all all that, this will sound weird, but I have I have uh, had a hard time connecting with the Psalms. Uh, they've they've always seen, well. I'll tell you why. I, I feel like as an artist, I can be artsy, but like when I think about God and theology, like I'm a systematic guy. Like when I think about my favorite books of the Bible, I'm like, give me Paul, give me Romans, give me the epistles, give me systematic theology, give me, you know, flowing arguments, you know, uh, definitions, like that stuff gets me going. And and so when I come to the Psalms, it kind of freaks me out because it feels like I'm at South by Southwest and everybody's a hippie and like, I don't really understand like what's happening here. It's not as clear cut. The definitions aren't as defined. They're, you have to sort of uh, uh, give sort of um, credence to creative license and that makes me nervous as a theologian so what you know when I come to this book that can be a little bit off-putting for me and yet there's just so much beauty here there's so much to glean out of these psalms so I'm really excited that we're in a series uh over the psalms and I'm excited to be stretched uh because like I said so reason one for me of like approaching these psalms is is that it's that sort of artsy like man, this could be difficult for you if you're systematic, but there's still a couple more reasons that make them difficult, especially the one that we're gonna be in this morning. So we're in Psalm 27 this morning and it can be a little tricky. Uh, It can, uh, and not just tricky like to interpret its meaning, but it, it can be tricky on the level of like relatability. So I think of like two things that jump out to me when I'm reading, especially this Psalm or Psalms like these. So if like one problem was it's they're not systematic enough, problem number two for me uh, has always been, there's just this, uh, this talk of enemies, right? In the Psalms a lot. Uh, you know, my enemies are oppressing me or coming against me and all that. And like, I've, I've if I am in the Psalms, I'm tending to avoid those particular Psalms because I just, I, it doesn't connect for me. Like on like a surface intuitive level that doesn't connect for me. Like I just can't tell you the last time that I was chased down by a murdering horde. It hasn't happened in years for me. That's not like a thing that goes on regularly. So when I come to the Psalms and I see those moments with like David here, I'm just like, ah, I want to, I want to feel you, bro. But I'm just not feeling the whole, like they want to devour my flesh. Like that just, you know what I mean? Like it's just, it's, It's unique about that. And I think uh, it's worth worth settling on on this point for just a second, just to go, as we're reading the Psalms, we wanna be able to see ourselves in these moments, so let's not blow past this. Let's, Let's get some categories for when we're reading about enemies, how we're supposed to interpret that, how we're supposed to see that. There's a sort of tangible enemy element and then there's also an intangible enemy element. And, and I don't want us to miss either. The tangible is sort of the obvious, right? I mean, David in this context is literally being chased by people. Like he literally has enemies with a face and an intention and a will and like an army around them. And those that's sort of like the easier version for us to understand. But then again, you know, it's hard to relate to that. I think about us here in Midlothian and we're, you know, we're, we're in just a place that is just not, you You just, you haven't had a spear thrown at you. Probably, you know? In New York, it's different. But Midlothian, we're safe, right? At least for a while. Now, I I, I do think it's worth saying, and I think we all have this maybe sense, especially if you keep up with the news at all, like the climate's changing, right? So the tangible enemies that like we can't, uh, super relate to in our context here in South Dallas give it time, right? It feels like the mood of our culture is shifting away from sort of Christendom and like, where it actually goes well for you to be a Christian into like a more antagonistic society. So that's, that's on the horizon. It's, it's, it's cropping up in different places all throughout our nation, and it will eventually arrive here. So I think there is a sense in which we need to approach this Psalm with that mindset of like, there, is, there are tangible opponents to me here and coming, right? So that's, that is the tangible side, but then there's also that intangible, right? Because when, when we're talking about enemies, we're talking about those people, those things, those whatever that strike fear in our hearts. And, and that doesn't always have to have a face, right? Like I think about all the, all the oil people in this room Right. I'm driving here, I'm seeing like $2 for gas. I'm thinking that's probably like a murdering horde, right? For some, for some folks. My dad, uh my my father-in-law just lost his job last year uh at 55 to, you know, because there's no, you know, there's no demand for oil. And so he was an oil guy, is out of a job, you know. Uh is happening for a lot of us. So, like, for you, when you when you're seeing what David's dealing with, before you just check out and go, and there's nothing that I can really relate to here, just maybe it's better to ask the question, what is striking fear in my heart, right? Because that's what's happening for David. A group of people striking fear in his heart and he's responding to that. But for you, for me, it doesn't necessarily uh, have to have a face. It can be situational. Or it can be intangible in that it's spiritual, right? We We know we have an opponent in Satan and the demonic forces right peter himself in the new testament will say that the the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour that is enemy language like you have an opponent right now and you can't see him taste him smell him touch him or hear him right but he is real as real as we are and he opposes you and he intends to strike fear in our hearts so there's this tangible element to enemies there's this intangible element to enemies but at the end of the day they are situations or persons that are intending to strike fear in our hearts. But then there's another problem, right? The other problem is, what is fear? Like, I feel like most of us have a really narrow definition of what what constitutes fear. And so when we see like language like dread and fear in in the Psalms, it's easy for us to go, man, I'm just not in that place, right? I'm just... You know, when you think about fear, a lot of times it's like the, the sensation of like, after you watch a horror movie, right? It's the trembling, it's the running and hiding, it's the yelling, it's the sleeping in your parents' bed. It, you know, please, if you're an adult, don't do that. But like, generally, like that's, that's what we think of when we think of fear. And that's just really narrow. And it's not gonna catch the, the whole of us in this room if that's how we see this. Uh, let me give you what I think might be a, a, a more helpful definition of fear, so that as we're reading along, you can sort of put your situations in that context, you can put your emotional states in that context, and, and see if it resonates more. So for, for the purposes of this sermon, we're going to frame fear in this way. Fear is the feeling produced when something you love is threatened, or when something you feel you need is withheld. Let me say that again. Fear is the feeling produced when something you really love is threatened. Or when something you feel that you just desperately need is being withheld from you. So with that being our definition, you can see how that really broadens the scope of things. I mean, a lot more things in our daily life fall into those sort of categories of emotions. And the tricky thing is it doesn't always have to like manifest like running and hiding, right? There's all sorts of ways that fear can crop up. So again, you might hear that and you still might be like, man, I just, I don't deal with a lot of fear. But have you considered for a moment that angry people are fearful people? Like anger can be a guise for fear. Like think about the guy who's driving down the road, He's on his way to work, 7 a.m., and there's just like this uncomfortably slow person in front of him, like in the fast lane, and he's just stuck, and he can't go anywhere. Anger bubbles up. He's, He's raging. He's cussing them out from his car. Like there's anger in that car, right? That's happening. But what's beneath it? What's motivating that anger? Well, what we don't know is that this guy is late for a meeting, and this is his third meeting to be late for and he's thinking in the car, if I'm late for one more meeting, I'm hosed. My boss is gonna cut me from the team. Like there's no, like my job security is at stake when I'm not getting to work. So fear rises up in him, right? Or maybe fear of reputation, like how am I gonna come off if I'm always the guy who's coming in late in the office? But that fear motivates anger. So it looks like mad, but it's actually scared. You see that? Or like anxiety, worry. This is probably a more common sort of sentiment when we think about fear, but just that sort of wringing of your hands, like, did I pass the test? Like, is everything going to be okay? Are we going to be able to pay the mortgage this month or the rent this month? Like, what do I do? That sort of looking every which way feeling. Anxiety, that that would be under that banner of like fear-motivated sentiments. Even despondency. Like that desire to sort of check out and be done with it, you know that feeling. I mean, everybody does, right? You know, it's the it's the feeling of like life is so overwhelming for me. When my mind, when I let my mind go to thing X, like I am just so stressed. Thank God there's Sports Center, right? Or this magazine, or this Blue Bell carton, or this this nap that awaits me, right? And, and we become despondent and we check out and we go, I'm not gonna deal with it. But that despondency is a guise for fear so often. So, so now, as, that all being said, I want you to be able to more easily now see yourself in this psalm. He's gonna be talking about enemies. He's gonna be talking about fear. He's gonna be doing it in poetic language, but we are right there with him. So many of us in this room are right there with him. So I want you to be able to see that as we go. Those are the rules for reading the psalm. Can we agree to the rules? Fantastic. Here we go. We are in Psalm 27, and I'm just going to start by reading the first three verses for us. So here we go. Verse 1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries, and my foes? It is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So let's stop there. This psalm uh, is about enemies. It's about fear. But it's also more than that, I think It's about courage, right? And in fact, if you know this Psalm, you probably know these first three to four verses uh, more than any part of the Psalm, maybe more than any Psalm that's out there. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? I mean, this is just bold language that David is using here. It's defiant, it flies in the face of what's happening circumstantially to him. And so the question that we need to be asking this morning is is one, what is his situation? And, and two, what's producing the fear? I mean, what's producing the courage in him? Uh, what's producing the courage? And then where what is his circumstance? Well, we don't really know exactly what's going on with David here. We know things that have gone on with David. And so we can sort of lay that as a grid over this and, and think about it in terms of what he has been through. And, and, and that may be totally appropriate. Like a... a Was it maybe when he was writing the psalm, was it uh, the circumstance with Saul chasing him down, right? King Saul, little context. uh, First king of Israel, couldn't land the plane. God brings Samuel to anoint David. David's now the boy king, future king, but Saul's still in power. Saul just bubbles with anger at this guy, decides he needs to take his life, right? Starts chasing him all over Israel and David's in hiding. Uh, I'll just read this for you to give you some context. 1 Samuel 23, 26. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maun in, in the Arabah to the south of Jeshemon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. So that's the situation. That's, that's a situation in David's life. King of his nation hunting him down to take his life. Was it that that he wrote this Psalm for? Maybe. Was it Absalom? Maybe so. Absalom, if you remember, is one of David's sons. David's sons, rough go. It was, it's, it, I don't know what your family life's like, It was worse for David, probably. So it's Absalom sees his father in power, knows that he's not the rightful heir to the throne. So he's trying to arrange circumstances such that he does get to be the rightful heir to the throne. He gets a posse around him. He convinces them, hey, I'm the guy. They say yes to him. And now he's chasing David. Second Samuel 15:13. And a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee or else there'll be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So was it Absalom? I mean, it it would make sense, right? It certainly fits with like the attitude of the psalm. We don't know what it was, but you need to just sort of see whatever it was, we can agree David's in a tough spot, right? This This is not an easy situation that he's in. And so now knowing that, we look back at the passage and the question we're answering, the second one is, where does this courage come from? So that was maybe the problem. That's the situation he's in. But where does the courage generate it? And we got to rule some options out here, right? Because we, we want to answer this question for ourselves. At the end of the day, we're trying to get to the, to the heart of the issue for ourselves. How do we gain courage when fear strikes? So was it, as we're reading this Psalm, was it that maybe... David underestimated his enemies. Like he thought little of what those guys were bringing to the table. Well, let's look at the text. So so I'm gonna just do a quick overview of Psalm 27. I'm just gonna pull out some language that David puts around the idea of enemies and, and how they are to him, that sort of thing. So just listen to the language he uses and answer the question for yourself. Verse two evildoers, adversaries, foes. Verse three, he likens them to an army. Verse 11, he calls them his enemies. Verse 12, false witnesses. Here's their activities. He says, they eat up my flesh. That sounds fun. Assail me. They encamp against me. It's like war is rising against me. Breathing out violence or threats of violence against me. So was it that he thought little of the strength or the power or the threat of his enemies? Well, no, right? He he rightly assessed his enemy situation? Was it that maybe, okay, he, he saw his enemies, but, but he overestimates his strength, right? That, that maybe when he looks in himself, he goes, I've got the facility, I can, I, can, I can handle this, right? Well, that's not it either, right? Because throughout the whole Psalm, there's not one self-referral moment of David that isn't a moment of expressing need to God. So there's no sense in this psalm that he thinks his enemies aren't a problem. And there's no sense in this psalm that, that he thinks that he can handle it, even if they were. So, so what is it? What is the thing that awakens in him this sense of confidence? Well, it's not that he, he does either of those. It's that he rightly Assesses his God. And I think that's, that's the big grab for me here when I'm reading this. is It's not just that you're underestimating your enemies. That would be really foolish, right? It's not that you're overestimating yourself. That would be really arrogant. It's that you're rightly estimating your God. We're gonna get to that in a moment, but I just wanna pause by way of application and just say, for you, where you are with the things that strike fear in your heart. I think it's really important for you not to do that either, not to diminish that threat. Like, uh, like you might really not have enough money this month to pay your rent. That might be an actual thing that's happening for you. You might have a teenager parents in the room who is, ruining their lives and making terrible life altering decisions that years down the road could totally destroy them. That's a legitimate threat that that could actually happen for them. Singles in the room, guys, girls, you might stay single forever. That's a nightmare for a lot of people. It shouldn't be, Paul says it's awesome. But uh, but for many of us in the room, That strikes fear in our heart. Those of us in the room who are wrestling with addiction, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, sex addiction, pornography addiction, like those are legitimate things that can destroy you. They can ruin your family. They can even take your life. Like this this is not child's play stuff. This is real stuff that can damage you, kill you. Our threat is real, but so is our God. Our threat is real, but so is our God. His confidence comes by rightly estimating his God. So let's look at verse one through three again. Just look at the language that he puts around God this time. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid I love it, light, salvation, stronghold, light to illuminate, salvation, that, that when he thinks about God, God doesn't just provide for him, rescue God, he calls him God, his rescue. God is his rescuer, stronghold, when you think stronghold, it's like fortress, bulwark. Uh, it is a defense. It's what you would hide behind when an enemy onslaught came. Like when he thinks about God, he thinks about him in those terms, that he is his defender, his salvation. He gives light to his path so he knows where to go. He illuminates his steps. And then verse four happens. And, and this to me is, is where the, uh, the real gem of this psalm uh, shines because David's about to take a really massive step past even what he said about God to this point in something that he's implying. Because up to this point, when when he's talked about God, it's about what God can do for him in light of his enemies, right? What we know so far with David is that when he thinks about God, he thinks, God is the solution to my enemy issue. Because he's my light, my salvation, my fortress, my stronghold. He's all those things. But then he's about to say something that uh, changes the paradigm completely. Uh, and he starts in verse four. And I'm just going to read the, f- the first line of this. Uh, he comes out the gate after saying that he's going to be confident no matter what situation comes his way. He says, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. Let's just stop there for a minute. Because when you hear language like that, that sort of definitive, singular, focused language, like one thing I've asked from the Lord, our spiritual ears should perk up. Because whatever is about to be said after this is like massively significant. It was, at least for David. It's significant enough that, like when commentators look at this moment in the Old Testament, this one thing I've asked from the Lord language. That type of language, they would say, appears nowhere else in your Old Testament. Like there's some numerical expressions that uh, repeat. Uh, you, you've, you've seen a number of places where it says like, three things the Lord hates, four that are an abomination to him. Like those, you know, six things that so-and-so, seven things that, Proverbs does that a lot. There is not a single other moment in your Old Testament where this sort of singular, focused, precise uh, language is used. And here David used it for the first and only time right here. One thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek after. And you gotta be asking the question, how how do you finish that sentence if you're David? Consider the circumstances. Like guys that he's calling essentially flesh eaters, assailing him, enemies, it's like an army's encamping against him, War is arising against him. Like that's the circumstance for David. Could be the king wanting to take his life. Could be his son wanting to take his life. Either way, his life's in jeopardy. How do you answer that if you're David? What do you say after one thing I've asked from the Lord that I shall seek after? You, It's a genie in the bottle. You can ask anything you want. What do you ask? If it's me, I'm asking one thing I've asked that I shall seek after that you would provide me some nunchucks you know, that have guns on the bottom of them and they destroy all my enemies, you know? One thing I would seek after that the camels that these guys are riding on would explode under them when they're coming so that they can't uh, attack me. Like those are the things I'm probably asking. I'm probably asking for defense-like things, right? Because that's what makes sense. It's intuitive. And he's gonna say something that I feel like is incredibly unintuitive next. Let's look at how David answers that question. Question. When David thinks about that one thing, he says this one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, verse four, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's one ask, his one Request the thing that his heart beats after when he thinks about all the chaos that is behind him coming at him. It's this I just want to see God. I just want to I just want to be with you and I want to see you. I mean he says three things in that verse, right? He says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. to to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate or to inquire in his temple. Those three things are happening here. Now, now before we get all all, uh, messed up about this temple language, let me just give you um, a sort of sense of uh, how we're supposed to read that as folks who who don't have to drive, you know, halfway across the country to, to meet with God. When David thinks about, the presence of God. When he thinks about what is the closest place that I can get to the actual manifest presence of God, he thinks about the tabernacle or the temple or the tent of meeting or, or the house of the Lord. All those words would be uh, useful here. And that place was the place that God ordained in the Old Testament to meet with His people. It was it was a, a building. It was a structure. It, before, during this moment, it was actually a tent that was that was pitched. And inside there were like different levels uh, that you could walk to as such that the final level was this place, this very special place called the Holy of Holies. And inside sat the Ark of the Covenant. Covenant. It's this gold box, cherubim arms over it, right? The wings spread out over it. And on that place is where God's literal presence would descend and he would meet with his people there. And you couldn't, it wasn't just anybody that could even meet with God in that place, right? It was a specific line called the Levites from the people of Israel. The the Levitical priests were the people who had access and they didn't even have access all the time, right? All that aside though, when David's thinking about where, where can I go to just be with God? The place that comes to his mind is that, is that space, the tabernacle. So when you're reading this and you see language like dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, don't think to yourself, this must mean that like David wants to change his lineage and become a Levite and uh, enter into the Levitical priesthood. That's not the point here, right? The point is not like the, the literal, this is, the, again, this is one of the frustrating things about the Psalms. It is poetic, right? So David's putting poetry around this and he's saying the best way I can describe it is it's like I want to live in the temple forever, so I can see him, so I can gaze at his beauty because the best thing for David was just God's presence alone. That was the best thing for him. The most important thing that you can hear and and remember this morning too is this. God, and not just his stuff, not just his protection, not just the things he brings to the table, but God himself is the greatest gift that God can give you. Listen, God, and not his stuff, as great it is, as it is, God is the greatest gift that God can give you and that God wants to give you this morning. I, uh, I think about this uh, in my own life, and I think about last year. Some of you um, maybe remember this. Uh, I, uh, for about six months last year, lost my voice. Um, That's a bit of a misnomer. What actually happened was I started uh, singing and there was just pain, like real bad pain on my vocal folds and such that I, I had to stop singing, such that I had to like start canceling shows, which means now I can't provide for my family and what's gonna to happen to me. And I couldn't just not sing like I couldn't talk anymore. Like those of us who are in home group together remember like I I found this awesome app that like robo voiced my messages. So I'd plug it in and, and I would talk as the uh, small group leader. It was very weird. But I I I wasn't able to speak. I wasn't able to sing. And it was just a nightmare for me. I mean, that's my livelihood. That's what I do. Even if I didn't get paid for it, that's what I love to do. And it it, it felt like it was being taken from me. Like that was my enemy, right? And fear just rose up inside of me. And yet, if you were to ask me right now, Jimmy, what is like, what is the one moment in like all of your history when you think about it that, that you felt nearest to God? I would say it was that six months where I couldn't sing or talk. It was, the, it was the time in my life where I had the most fear that I that I was the most near to God. Isn't that fascinating? Like I, I in that moment I had nowhere else to go. And so I would just start rushing to him in his word, and I would sit with him for sometimes hours at a time asking him tough questions about why this was happening, getting to know him in his word, having Jesus just leap off the pages at me. And as I saw this picture of God grow, as I saw, as I saw his sovereignty expand and like his authority over all things, including my voice, grow and develop through, through the reading of his word and through talking to him, I just fell in love with gazing at him. And it became just such a sweet thing for me to just look at him and marvel at his beauty and, and know at the end of the day, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay. And can I say, oh, that, those feelings, that gazing, that enjoyment of, of seeing Jesus rose in me before I was able to talk again. It wasn't that I got what I wanted and then finally I was like, oh God, you are so good. So many of us, that's Christianity for us. It's like, I'll celebrate God when he gives me what I want. But what David's doing here is going in the midst of not getting what I want, right? In the midst of them coming at me, gazing at you is the best thing. You with no attachments. You with nothing else you're bringing to the table. Just you. Does that describe you? Does that describe your encounters with God? I want to give a warning right now because I think there's a warning hidden in this passage for us. There is a type of gazing at God that only seeks his hand and what's in it and not his face. There's a type of gazing that we can do as Christians, Bible-believing, church-going Christians that only seeks his hand but never seeks his face that type of gazing offends God and he will not bless it. Let me say it this way. I'm married 10 years now with Kelly and uh, you know we, uh, I'll give you this scenario. If we're walking down an alleyway at night, which we love to do, we just love dark alleys at night. And a ninja jumps out and tries to karate chop my wife and take her purse. I'm going to punch that ninja in the face and take his purse because nobody messes with my wife, right? That's just how I roll. But if you were to go to Kelly and ask her, Kelly, why did you marry Jimmy? She would probably not say, I married him because he beats up ninjas for me. And he, he protects me from, from harm in dark alleys when we're walking at midnight. She wouldn't say that. What would she say? Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully, she would say, I married him because I love him. For him. For who he is. For, for the man that God made him. Not because of all the things he's bringing to the table for me, but just for who he is, simply. Simply. you need to hear me say this. Um, God will not be exploited by you for your own personal gain. Like you hook up with God and get some stuff that he has and, and, and now you're good. Do you know what it's called when you exploit someone without relationship for your personal betterment? You know what that's called? There's a word for it. It's called prostitution. And some of you need to hear this this morning and this might feel heavy handed. Um, But God will not be a prostitute for you. He is interested in a marriage. He wants covenant. He wants love. He does not want a one-night stand. He does not want a fling. And he does not want to be exploited. Are you coming to God just to get something from him? Is he a means for you? Or is he the glorious end of it all? I love how John Piper says that God is the gospel he is the, that's the punchline of the gospel is you get god even if you think that that heaven is the end game for you you've misplaced what christianity is it's god in heaven for you forever that's the gem of it all god alone he even says it right here in, in uh, the Psalm, uh, Psalm 27, 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, I do seek. Let's be people who seek his face and not just what's in his hand, amen? So then as we're reading along, there's these massive statements of confidence. David's, David is leaning on God. He is, he is full of courage in God. And then there's this pivot. And it's a strange pivot. And again, it's one of the reasons that when I read the Psalms, I'm, I'm left confused because it's like, what, what does this turn mean for my theology? I'll just read it to you and, and we'll talk about it. Uh, verses seven through 12 is a little section we'll read. Hear, O Lord, he says, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, O Lord, do I seek? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me and they breathe out violence. At first glance, that's got to be so confusing for some of us, Right? Like, is this cat schizophrenic? What's happening? You just said like the most like affirming, God has got my back sort of thing. That, that's, that's in probably all the Psalms. And then like, please don't be angry at me, God. And, and they're closing in on me. And what, are you, what am I supposed to do? Like, like draw near to me. I'm calling out to you. Like there's all these pleas, plea after plea after plea. It can feel really confusing, but I think there's something for us here. I think God is saying something to us in this moment and and it's been precious to me. I think the takeaway from this moment is this. Good theology, good theology still cries out to God. Good theology still cries out to God. Like they're not mutually exclusive. Like, one, one of the problems that happens, and, and it shouldn't, it's a problem with our flesh, not with, with the theology. But one problem that happens with embracing big, robust, sovereign God theology can, is that it can produce in our flesh this attitude of, like, stoicism or, or apathy or fatalism. Like, que sera, sera, it's gonna be what it is, God's in control of everything. It's whatever, man, you know? It's that whole like your life's falling apart. Man, how you doing? God is good, man, all the time. It's like, bro, shut up. It is, it's not good right now, right? But, but sometimes we can mistakenly think that like, I, if I cling to this particular doctrine that, that I have to be cool, just complacent, calm, But that is not what our Bible shows us. David has awesome theology, better than you, better than me. And here he is crying out, pleading with God. God, be gracious to me and answer me. Like there's concern, are you gonna answer me? I hope you do. Like, it's just real. And isn't it just like a breath of fresh air to know, like you can know big truths about God and still, know that he's inviting you to cry out. Like that's what prayer is. Like it's crying out to God, pleading with him, talking with him from your heart, not giving him some like phony, I know that you know all things and are sovereign and so I'm just gonna be good and my house is on fire. Like that's weird. Don't do that. Ask him for grace, ask him for help. Shed a tear, it is okay to do that. He's calling us to do that. A Christian is not somebody who, who is stoic, who is, who is stone-faced. We're soft people who believe big things, but then we cry. Then we go to God. And that's the rhythm of this, this psalm. It's like this mix of like, I'm, I'm looking back, God, and I'm seeing all the good things that you've done, and, I, and there is a confidence in me, and now I'm in the, the midst of it, knowing the things you've done, but I'm in the midst of it now, and I saw your presence then, and now I'm crying out for your presence now, and then there's this great moment that happens toward the end of this Psalm, where, it, where it's a return back to that. So it's a looking this way, your presence was there, I'm crying out for your presence here, and now God, as I look forward beyond this situation, Your presence is there too. It's at the end of it. It's at the beginning. You're gonna meet me here and it's all the way at the end. Let's read these last three verses together. It says uh, in verse 12, he says, give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. And then here's the turn. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That verse uh, 13 it is an interesting one. Um, and I don't want to, us to, to get it twisted. I don't want us to read something into the text that David uh, wasn't originally intending. So let's, let's just be clear. When David's thinking about the situation he's in, and he's thinking about the oppression that's coming against him, the walls are closing in, enemies, fear. And when he says something like, I would have despaired unless I believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord you know, in the land of the living, he's probably not thinking heaven here, right? Old Testament theology of heaven and hell and afterlife, it was narrower, it was smaller, it was cloudier, murkier. There, were, there wasn't a, a really clear picture here. Most commentators agree that, that he's likely talking about like here, like, like right here on this earth and this land of the living, I'm gonna see the goodness of God. Like I'm gonna come out of the other side of this and be okay. Like that's, that's likely what he's saying here. Like he's saying, I have a confidence that God is gonna turn all these things for my good in this life and in this life, after this is over, I can say, I'm still seeing your goodness in the land of the living. But of course we're on the other side of the New Testament. right? And we, and we have more than he had, so much more. We have, we have such clearer lenses to look through. So clear that what looks like the land of the living to David for us, really looks a lot more like the land of the dead. Because we know what the land of the living looks like now. We know what it really looks like. And by comparison, this, this doesn't seem near as hopeful. So for us, I think it's totally appropriate. If for David, it was, it was in his life. For us, it's, it's still very appropriate for us to see this text and go, there is a future for me if this circumstance pans out or not, if I get out of this or not, if the fear subsides or not, if my enemies prevail or not, there is an end game for me here that is beautiful. I get to see God in his goodness and be at peace. And I get what my heart's desire is, which is gazing at the beauty of God and the goodness of God forever. That's what David's reminding himself of here. And man, what a great reminder for us. In the midst of like all the things that rise up in you, in me, all the terror that strikes our heart. It's what Rodney's been preaching about for the past few weeks, hasn't it? That sort of future glory. Man, it is, it is that, that sort of sense of what's coming is good for me because I've been purchased Jesus has has made a way, has established me in the family of God, and I am good for eternity, so I'll get to gaze at God eventually. It's that sort of attitude that emboldens us, right? It's that attitude that, that gives us such courage in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, like this light and momentary suffering that we're dealing with now. It is that thought that the Bible is saying you need to cling to future ideas of what's coming for you in Christ. And that's what's gonna give you the confidence you need. You know, as I thought about the end of this psalm, I just couldn't help but remember what happened, uh, what, six, eight months ago now uh, in Libya, where uh, 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians were captured in Libya. I think we we have a picture here of it. You guys remember this scene, 21 guys, working in Libya, Egyptian, Coptic Christians, captured by ISIS at the time, brought to this beach. And the reason that we know anything about this story is uh, because ISIS made a video of it and, and put it online. And uh, it's five minutes of them mocking Christ, uh, exalting themselves, and then taking these guys' heads off. And I just, I just couldn't help but think about this, this story, that, that image, when I was working on this. Because I'm asking myself the question, what makes these guys not be sobbing uncontrollably right now? What, what made them be able to stay on their knees and not jerk away? You know, it was reported that, that they were on their way, on their journey on the beach to this spot, singing hymns to one another, to Jesus. Their last words recorded on the video were them just whispering to themselves, Lord Jesus Christ. What produces that type of courage? What does that? The gospel does that. A promise that at the end of that moment, five minutes after that moment, they will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If if that news is sturdy enough for them and it's sturdy enough for David here with all the opposition, with his life being threatened, is it not sturdy enough for us in our relatively small dealings, our relatively small crises? It is, and so much more. We have a hope. We have a a view of God and what he's done in our past. We have permission by God to, to gaze at him and call on his presence in the present trials that we're going into right now. And we have a hope that at the end of it all, we'll still get him. We should be emboldened people. We should be sturdy, strong, stable, people in Christ people who can fix our eyes on the goodness and the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God and that make us unshakable inside i just think about david his last line here wait for the lord be strong and let your heart take courage wait for the lord that is what we are called to this morning too In your circumstances, big or small, we are called to wait for Him, to gaze on Him now, and to look to Him for our future. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.